Booster is excited to support DIA Schools Collaborative on furthering their mission to strengthen Catholic schools. Booster is a one-stop shop for all your fundraising needs, offering a wide range of services from fitness fundraisers to product sales, custom gear, and more. Visit ChooseBooster.com to find out how you can make Booster your fundraising partner this school year. Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ the Teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your calling, calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your host. And today we will be talking with Dr. Brett Sockeld, the Archdiocesan Theologian for the Archdiocese of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada. Now, Brett is also responsible for deacon formation in the Archdiocese. He is the author of Can Catholics and Evangelicals Agree About Purgatory and the Last Judgment? How Far Can We Go? A Catholic Died to Sex and Dating with Leah Perot, and Transubstantiation, Theology, History, and Christian Unity. He's also written a brand new book, and that really is what we want to talk about today, called Educating for Eternity, a teacher's companion for or for making every class Catholic. Brett is a sought-after speaker on many topics related to the Catholic faith. He also serves the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops as a member of the Roman Catholic Evangelical Dialogue in Canada. His weekly podcast with Deacon Eric Gerash, or is it Gerash? Gerash. Gerash is entitled Thinking Faith. Brett, his wife Flannery, and their seven children live in Regina, Saskatchewan. Brett is also going to be at our DIA Summit in Washington this October, I believe, as one of our worship leaders, or workshop leaders, excuse me, I was giving you another job, workshop leaders, and he will be the keynote speaker the following year. So, Brett, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Father. Well, it's so good that you're with us, and one of the things we like to do at the beginning of every program is to give our guests an opportunity to tell us a little bit about themselves. So could you just share a bit about your upbringing? Yeah. So I was born in small town Saskatchewan. So imagine, you know, the Midwest, but a little colder in the winters. St. Wenceslas Parish. So I think, by the way, Wenceslas is an underutilized name for new boys, so if you're looking for a, a baby name, grew up in St. Wenceslas Parish, oldest of five kids. My mom was a teacher. There were no Catholic schools where we grew up. 
But in Saskatchewan, there are publicly funded Catholic schools, but they're only in the major centers by and large. And so we didn't have one where I grew up. Loved history in particular in high school and thought I'd be a history teacher. And so went to university to study history and education. And uh, during that time, my history profs were encouraging me to, to do a master's degree. And I was looking at graduate work in history, but all of my papers were tending towards church history. So I'd written a paper on Catherine of Siena and medieval women mystics in my medieval history class. I wrote a paper on Pius XII and the Jews for my Nazi Germany class, things like that. And so I was starting to do a little theology in my history degree. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'll study church history. And it turned out that church history is not generally offered in secular history faculties. It's offered in theology faculties, which was a thing I knew nothing about. So I, I applied and got into a couple different theology faculties to study church history. And then when I got there, realized that what I'd been chasing my whole life, but that I didn't have the words for, was systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I told my mom that, she said, oh yeah, when you were little, you'd come home from catechism class and you'd walk circles around the kitchen table and you'd talk to yourself. You know, you'd be sorting through the ideas that you'd heard in catechism. And, uh, but, but as I had trained as a teacher in, in one of my undergraduate degrees, I always remained connected with, with Catholic education. I was intrigued by it because it didn't exist where I grew up. And I trained, one of the jobs I had when I was in grad school for theology was teaching Catholic teachers. They had some intro courses for Catholic teachers who were hired to work in the Catholic system in Ontario, where I was studying. And, you know, when you get hired, you take a couple courses, you know, intro, intro sacraments, intro scripture, intro ethics. And so I taught a lot of that and worked with teachers. And then I've worked with teachers in a lot of contexts since in, in Catholic higher education, teachers doing master's degrees in religious ed, for example, I, I lead a program here in Saskatchewan for teachers doing that. And so even though I didn't become a teacher myself with my ed degree, I've always been connected with, with a Catholic education as a theologian. And that, you know, is what ended up leading to this book was my work with Catholic teachers. Well, you can tell your familiarity is, is just threaded throughout the book, that it's not written from the standpoint of somebody looking someplace from an overarching position into, but as a part of, which is it was wonderful. You know, very few jurisdictions in North America have a diocesan theologian. How did mm-hmm. that come about? Yeah, so the previous archbishop wanted to start a diaconate formation program. And the nearest seminary or theological college was in Edmonton, which is like an 11 hour drive. And diaconate programs, you know, they'll typically run, you know, on weekends, Friday night through Sunday afternoon kind of thing. And sending guys to Edmonton, you know, guys studying for the diaconate typically have day jobs and families mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It, it just wasn't a workable kind of thing. So he basically brought me in as a kind of one man uh, faculty to, to run a diaconate formation program. Now, I don't teach everything. I bring in lots of other experts. And now, you know, we're all much better at doing that virtually. So now, you know, I have access to even more expertise at a distance. But I was brought in. I say the reason there's a line for me in the budget was the diaconate formation program. But once you once you have a theologian in the office, it takes a couple of years. But, you know, at first people are like, what's he doing in there? Like he's 
he's typing away and he's reading books and you know what what are we what are we paying this guy for and then then they kind of figure out you know all the things that theologian can do so and then our new archbishop is really really appreciates the role of theology in the life of the church and and he's found lots of other work for me but i do all kinds of things helping parishes giving talks at our cia doing talks at our lay formation program consulting with the bishop you know when covid happened all of a sudden there were a whole bunch of ethical questions around vaccines sure. and things that we had like vague ideas about but we none of us had given them any thought recently you know it was like you know a 10 minute discussion in your ethics class about something like cooperation with evil that you never had to apply in any specific context other than other than voting that's the one place where you always have to apply that one but anyways mm -hmm when these things come up in the life of the church and you know the bishop will come up to me and say like what's what can we say about this what are the resources what are the issues how do we how do we put these things together so i've done like work on things like polarization and conspiracy theories because those became big issues in the life of the church over covid all, all kinds of you know I, I have to be responsive to what's going on it, you mm -hmm. know what what are the letters the bishop's getting <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Those are things I need to know about. Yeah. That, you know, with all of that as your background, I mean, we could go a lot of different directions with our sure. conversation, but I really want to focus on your book. I loved your book, Educating for Eternity, A Teacher's Companion for Making Every Class Catholic. When I was president of a, of a Catholic high school, one of the things we used to say is that our job was to get our kids to heaven, but we just wanted them to go to college first. Right. And, <laughs> That's so, a good line. Yeah. Well, feel free to use it. It's not mine. I think we borrowed it from a lot of other places. But it really speaks to the heart of what the Catholic mission is. And really, that's what DIA even exists for, is to be mindful of the fact that our educating of the young is really an eternity-based focus, not just a job-based focus or anything else. Now, this book is very unique. It's got some philosophy, anthropology, practical curriculum design, apologetics. It's just jam-packed. How did this book come about? Yeah, I, I was working with Catholic teachers. Well, okay, there's two, there's two different branches, so I have to keep them straight. I was working with our local Catholic college, first in their Catholic studies program. And they were looking for, you know, classes that would attract students, you know. And one of the things they said was, well, we have Catholic schools here. Maybe we could offer something for people studying in the education faculty who would like to work in the Catholic school system. And so we went to Regina Catholic schools and we said, if, you know, students, ed, ed students that were looking for work with you were to take one class in Catholic education, what would you want them to learn? And they said, curriculum permeation, curriculum permeation, and curriculum permeation. And I said, what? <laughs> I, I had, I, you know, this is kind of edu speak, right? It's kind of jargony, yeah. and I, I didn't know what it meant. And so when they told me that it's, you know, the, the practice of teaching every subject area from a Catholic worldview, I thought, well, that's intriguing. And so I kind of learned with my students, you know, when you teach a course for the first time and you're sort of one week ahead of the students, Right. Uh, so it was sort of like that. And we kind of learned together. But by the end of the class, we were all so excited. I thought, man, if I taught this class, you know, every year for 10 years and sent 15 students into the Catholic school system with this kind of 
way of thinking about teaching. It would transform the thing. And then for reasons beyond my control, universities have, you know, all kinds of reasons for doing the things they do. The class didn't run again. They tried to, they wanted to try a different time in the schedule, but it didn't work for the actual teachers and it got scuttled. Anyways, I was pretty disappointed and, and I was very excited about the material. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with this material? And I thought, you know, well, maybe I'll write a book. And at the same time, a group of working Catholic teachers here in Regina reached out to me and said, could you do a series of talks for us on curriculum permeation? Not exactly the same time. It was the following year because they knew I had been thinking about it. And they said, look, the school board wants us to do this. It's, it's in all the, you know, all the meetings. We talk about how this is what we're supposed to be doing. But none of us were trained to do it in our undergraduate degrees. And we haven't really had any professional development in it, but we're supposed to do it, you know. And so I developed a series of talks for this group of teachers called the Catholic Teachers Guild. And that's where I got a lot of the material where I first worked on the material in the second half of the book, where I kind of went subject area by subject area. So we did an evening on math and science, an evening mm -hmm. on health and phys ed, an evening on literature and art, that kind of thing. And I just started thinking it through with my theological lenses, right? What's a Catholic approach to these things? But then also with the teacher lenses of what does this mean in the classroom kind of thing. And so it was it was working in those two contexts where most of the ideas came out. And then and then, you know, then you just got to write the thing down. You got to sit down in your chair and stare at your screen until something happens. <laughs> so now curriculum permeation is basically the same thing that Dr. Claire Kilbane was talking about from the McGrath Institute. I'm assuming the Catholic academic integration. Right. Yeah. So there's lots of different language that gets used around this. I ask when I give a presentation, I ask teachers to put up their hand if they've heard this or that term. And another comment, so curriculum permeation is widely used in Canada. I actually like Dr. Kilbane's language of Catholic academic integration because it's it's a little more precise. Yeah. But almost everyone will have heard something like, you know, infuse your teaching or infuse your lesson plan with a Catholic worldview. Right. Or, or even something as generic as with the faith, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. Curriculum permeation is often used to mean a pretty broad range of things that includes things like the attitudes in your school and your decor and all that kind of stuff, which is all valuable stuff. Catholic academic integration is a little more pointed where, where it's zeroing in on the academic subject areas, the disciplines themselves. What does it mean to teach health from mm -hmm. a Catholic perspective? How does the health class here look different from the health class in the public school across the street, right? And so I, I like that term, Catholic academic integration, but I, I recognize that there's a lot of different ways that people have used to talk about it. And if you look at this or that school or diocese, you know, their documentation around it, something like this shows up in, under different language in a lot of different ways. And even in the Vatican documents, actually, mm -hmm. you can go digging and find related language in the documents from the Congregation for Catholic Education. Right. Now, what, she, what Dr. Kilbane, and by the way, she was at one of our early guests on Follow to Lead. She's oh, an amazing, cool. amazing woman. When we, when we talk about this, do you really think that the schools are spending good quality time taking a hard look at Catholic integration? 
you know what I'm hearing from people? I'm, I'm getting a lot of contacts from people who do this work, whether it's principals or superintendents, or there's different names for the consultant who's responsible for this particular part of the job. And a lot of them say, we've been thinking and talking about this. We know we need to do it. We don't have resources. And so they say like your book kind of came as at the time, like when we, I don't know how many times I've heard them say like this year, we decided that our focus for the year was going to be something like Catholic academic integration. And then we found your book, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's a, there's a sense in the Catholic ed community that we need to be moving in this direction. And I think it's, there's a couple factors, you know, as you get into a more and more sort of post-Christian culture, being a little more intentional about your own worldview, especially when everything seems to be up for grabs, I think that's attractive. I think a lot of the public is giving, you know, schools like Catholic schools a second look because they're nervous about the state of public education in the United right. States. And then the question is, okay, so how are we different? You know, I mean, we can put a crucifix on the wall and we can have a religion class and those are good things, but it feels like it needs to reach deeper than that. And so there's a lot of like cultural pressures and ideas that are, that are, you know, inclining people to look in this direction and they're, you know, they're doing it with more and less success. Like I've heard people talk to me and say, Hey, we did this and it worked really well. And I've heard other people say, you know, we tried this and you know, they didn't seem to get it. And, you know, but now we've got your book and hopefully that will help. So I think it's kind of, it, it's, it's variable out there mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. You know, and it, a lot of people are trying with varying degrees. Now it's, it's, and it's more than just adding Catholic content. Yes. Or, or like you said, it's more than putting a prayer at the beginning, a crucifix on the wall and, you know, a Hail Mary at the end of class. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I, I make a distinction in the book and in any of the work I do with teachers between Catholic content and what I call Catholic context. And so the easiest thing to imagine is to just put Catholic content in your, in your you know, lesson plan. And that's pretty easy if you're teaching music class or art class, right? You can, you can find right. Catholic art or literature mm -hmm. and add it to the curriculum. And by all means, we should do that. Like our, our kids should know their own artistic heritage and literary heritage. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to stop there. And that's also, that doesn't fit super well in math. You know, if you, if you start making all your sort of, you know, math problems about religious content, it's going to feel, I, I'm not going to say you should never do it, but if you do it too much, it's going to feel a little arbitrary because it's not integrated with the subject area itself. And it just feels like, oh my goodness, this is, will they ever stop talking about, you know, how many beads on a string or, or, you know, although I think there's some neat ones you could do, you know, I think you could do a neat study of like the rose window in a cathedral from a mathematical point of view, right? Or sure. there's some architectural principles in, in church buildings that would have mathematical points of interest. So I think you can do it, but I, I don't want to overdo it. But what I think is more important than adding that stuff into a subject area where it's not an obvious fit is to think about like, what does math mean within a Catholic worldview? And right. then that also would apply to literature, but I'll, I'll go with math because math is the math is the one where people say like, well, sure, I can, I can teach religion class and I can put some Catholic stuff in my English class, but math, like really you can do math. And, and my argument back is like, 
every class you're teaching, you have some presuppositions, you have certain goals. You and and what I do in the book is I say you you imagine some goals for your students. And are those goals, you know, jobs and citizenship? Or are they, you know, some broader vision of the human good? Now, jobs and citizenship are good, but are they the highest good? And is that and is math merely a utilitarian way to get good at jobs, you know, certain kinds of jobs that require math? Or is there something deeper where, you know, human persons are made in God's image and likeness and we're stewards of creation and we're made to pursue truth and goodness and beauty and math is a unique way to seek out truth and therefore learn something about ourselves and about God. And that also has incredible potential for our stewardship of creation. You know, if you think of something like two things as different as like a railway bridge or a retirement plan, both of those are ways that we've used math to build out the potential that God put into creation, into something valuable that, that, you know, serves human flourishing, right? And we do that with math. So it's part of what it means to be a steward. And so, you know, that's still useful for jobs. You still, you can still be a really good accountant or an engineer if you have that broader print, but then it's embedded within a much richer sense of what human beings are for. You know, I find kids get bored if, if the only reason they have for studying your subject is its utility for the job market, they might still study it, but the kind of joy and the wonder that you want is harder to sort of conjure up you know, but I think within that broader picture. And then, so that that's what I mean by Catholic context. What is a person for? What is the final goal of the person? And how does your subject relate to that? And you do that with math or literature or health or any other subject area. Yeah. I noticed that you started the book. You've got the book in two parts. You have the second part, which is the actually academic integration piece, but you start the first part by saying, what are people for? which is a great place to begin because it seems sometimes that education passes over the who for in favor of the what to. Right, right. In teaching. When I when I taught this university class, the first thing I did is I wrote the question, what are people for on the board? And I asked the students to get out a pen and paper and just do a free write, you know, just write for 10 minutes and see what you come up with. And it's an interesting question because it's the kind of thing that you may have never heard before. But when you see it, you think, I'm a human being. I should have some answer to this. <laughs> like, If I don't know what I'm for, I, right. I maybe need to sit down and think, you know. And, and the point is, an education always presumes that people are for something. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to presume that people are to become, you know, producers in an economy. Or, or maybe more important, consumers in an economy, Right. And or that or, you know, maybe a little higher is, you know, that they should be good citizens that contribute to to the health of their societies. OK, those are good. Right. We want graduates of our schools to be able to do those things. But is, is that satisfying? Is that what we're for? Because they seem to have it seems to just ask the next question. Right. OK, so I'm, I'm I should be a good producer and consumer in the economy. What for? Yeah. You know, what I mean? like the yeah. four-year-old question, right? You just keep asking. And 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 I say, like, if, if we go with the Catholic tradition, 
you know, St. Augustine maybe said it best that God, you've made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Right. That's what people are for. Then jobs and citizenship and all those other things take their rightful place. And they are, they are natural goods that we rightly pursue, but they're ordered rightly. And then if, you know, if, if you get a better job than I get, is your life worth more? If, well, if jobs are what life is about, then yes. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but if you're called to one kind of work and I'm called to another kind of work and both of us serve the kingdom and pursue truth and goodness and beauty and, and reach for God together. And one of us makes more money than the other. Our, our, our worth isn't completely tied up in that and our sense of purpose and whatever. And, you know, Jim Carrey, the Canadian comic actor has uh-huh. this great line he says everyone should get rich and famous because then they'd know that that's not what makes you happy yeah that is a great way of looking at it because again we can look at life as utilitarian you know right i'm only good and and needful as far as what i can produce right i i heard a, a psychiatrist once say that one of the dangers of modern society is that we are producing a generation of human doings not human beings right right and 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 you see the anxiety teachers see the anxiety and the boredom that results from this attitude if my education is only so that i can do more stuff i mean is my fate to just work myself to death is that is that what i'm here for or it or should i get rich enough that i don't have to work and then i can you know enjoy a lot of sort of comforts and then all rot in the grave Mm -hmm. even that doesn't seem that satisfying right and i think you even have an uptick in you know people wonder you know why this uptick in religious or political fundamentalism and this can go left or right you know but i think it's because we haven't offered people something meaningful if if what we offer them is you know if you work hard enough you can get a good job and that's the meaning of your life a lot of people are like, well, that's not good enough. You know, why does some American kid who's not, who's never touched a Quran go fight for ISIS? Because ISIS tells him that his life can mean something bigger, you know? And right. like people want that. They, they'll li- they will literally die for it. And we've, we've got it in Catholic schools. We've got something worth living for. So we shouldn't, you know, put that under a bushel basket. And what, one of the things that I think is going on now is even if you look at the who for, you know, what are people for, uh, modern society is kind of morphing that sense of our our being into something that's very different from what God looks God reveals as his purpose for creation, which which really kind of brings us back to a Catholic worldview. As, right. as being important, because there are certain things, values that will fit or won't fit in a Catholic worldview. What's at stake for our students if we really don't take that idea of a Catholic worldview seriously, do you think? Right. Well, I mean, one that stands out for me, you know, this notion like you can do anything and you can be anything you want to be. On this, I mean, it sounds lovely. And okay, and I always want to acknowledge that there's the true thing that people who say that are trying to say, right? What they what they what they mean when they say you can do or be anything is like don't be limited by false 
things like fears or whatever. Like we can actually overcome real boundaries. That's possible and good, right? And so I want to affirm that there's a true thing that people are trying to say. But but I mean, if you just look at the statement, you can be anything you want. Well, no, you can't. Yeah. Like, you actually like you actually can't, right? Yeah. And and but it, and then how would I know? This is the trick that that gets people trapped so desperately. It's so hard on our young people. If I can do or be anything, but there's no measure outside of myself, how do I know what it is good to be? Um, right. And so I might choose to be one thing today, but I but tomorrow I know that what I chose yesterday was just it was just my own will imposing itself essentially on nothing. And I could have just as easily chosen something else. And so you end up with this kind of paralysis where if you can choose anything, but there's no way to evaluate the goods at stake between your different choices, then you're just sort of stuck. So what you actually need is something outside yourself by which your choices can actually be measured and so take on some meaning. And so within this question of like, I can be or do anything. Well, first of all, no, you can't. Though we acknowledge the true and good thing that is intended in at least most uses of that phrase. But here's the thing. God created you to be something. And that's a unique and miraculous kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's a great quote from Cardinal Newman on this. You know, God created me for one. I don't have it right in front of me, so I'll kind of wing it from memory. But God created me for one unique purpose, you know. And I think that should be on the walls in our classrooms, mm -hmm. right? Because then there's then there's something to actually strive for that's not arbitrary. But there's there's a calling given to each of us, and each person has a unique vocation. And and then your choices have meaning against that background. But if there's no place beyond yourself to measure anything, your choices become meaningless. And then you get bored and anxious, and then you're willing to follow all kinds of political or religious ideology and, that and you can flip you flop back yeah you can flip flop back and forth between identities too you can fly all over the place right yeah. and and it shows up in political extremism it shows up in gender ideology it shows it shows up all over the place and it's a i think all of these things are a response to a kind of existential angst that that is rooted in this like my choices actually don't matter the only thing that matters is kind of bald assertion and so then what you see with, with people who've who've taken that route is that assertion becomes so important that they, they come across as mostly angry, right? And that there, there has to be a fight for, even if other people don't want to fight you, you have to kind of assert yourself against something, right? Because you're just, you're in the void, you know, there's, there's no context, there's no texture anywhere. And so I think, you know, a Catholic worldview actually gives us a world in which we can make sense of ourselves with just sort of without this kind of just assertion and the opposite of the assertion is the just giving up right i mean mm -hmm. so you can assert yourself very intensely in some political movement that gives your life meaning or you can have like fake victories and and mostly watch porn and play video games right you know one of the things that you mentioned in the book that i i really think is such a critical observation and it really goes beyond education to even our culture and that is that really the problem today goes beyond what to think to how to think 
Right, right. What 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 are your <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so there's this famous phrase. I actually, I use this when I speak to teachers and they can complete it for me, right? They know that you're supposed to teach kids how to think, not what to think. So I say, you know, teach them how to think, don't teach them. And they all say what to think. They all know the answer. Um, well, again, here we have something true that is trying to be said, right? Right. That that just teaching people what to think is a kind of brainwashing. And that's not what education is, Right. But but if you look at this phrase, teach kids what to think, not how to think. Or, sorry, I flipped that. Teach kids how to think, not what to think. There's a performative contradiction at the heart there because you're telling someone what to think when you say that. And it's a little bit dishonest to pretend that you can actually not teach people what to think. Uh, you, we're always making truth claims. Even someone who says there's no such thing as a truth claim just made one. Just made one, yeah. You, you, you can't avoid it. You're always making truth claims. And the, the solution is to, to the brainwashing problem is not to stop making truth claims because you can't help yourself. You will make a truth claim in your denial of truth claims. It's, it's just unavoidable. The, the solution is to just be honest about what you're doing. You say, I, I'm making a truth claim. And now you, as another free person, can engage with it responsibly and ask critical questions of it and put it in dialogue with other things that you believe to be true and see if it makes sense of your world or not. And you can accept it or reject it or mm -hmm. challenge it and accept it, you know, with revisions, <laughs> as they say in grad school, right? I mean, but you 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 actually give someone an opportunity to engage honestly with your truth claim. And then you're teaching them what to think and how to think. But you're mm -hmm. not imposing. See, this is what people are worried about with it. Don't teach them what to think is that you're imposing something. No, you don't impose as Pope St. John Paul II says, you propose, you, you, you make a truth claim and you own it as such. You don't pretend that that's not what you're doing. And then it becomes sort of camouflage and nefarious. And that's when brainwashing really happens is when the people are pretending not to make truth claims, but they're making them nonetheless. No, you make your claim, but you, you you be honest that that's what you're doing. I think this is true. I think this is worthy of your consideration. I think you should put this in dialogue with your own experience of the world and the other things you know to be true and see if it makes sense. And then let's have a conversation. And like a Catholic education that does that is going to convince some of your students of Catholic truth and others. They're free people. They won't be. You're not going to convince everyone of every truth claim. And that that's, you know. God understood that when he made free people that you don't get to impose that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but even if what they learn in the how to think is that you engage with people of goodwill in a free and dialogical model, well, that's a win too, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, and it's great preparation for living in a society where people don't always agree with you, which is one of the things we're, we're really dying for is people who know how to engage with other people of goodwill who who think differently. Yeah, unfortunately, we're living in the generation of name calling, where if I don't agree with you, I'll just call you a name and we'll avoid the subject completely. Right. Yeah. We sloganeer all the time, right? You're on the right side of history. Follow the science. They're all they're all shorthand for I'm not actually engaging with what you think. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes following the science isn't following the science, it's following sentimentality. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets used as a shorthand to skip a bunch of steps. You know, we can agree about a scientific claim and not agree about what it means for a political action. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Now, in, in the second part of the book, the teachers are going to find some really good resources and you're breaking it down by subject matter, language arts, science, math. And phys ed, which I thought was great, that phys ed is not just for the jock. I, I I love that little approach to it. But one of the statements that you make is that the church doesn't ask teachers to transgress upon the rightful autonomy of the individual disciplines. Could you kind of explain that a little bit? Right. Yeah. One of the things people worry about when they hear about Catholic academic integration is that every class just became theology class. Right. And so, yep. you know, I think, you know, math or science in particular, those are the ones that people are really nervous about. They have their rightful autonomy and you can't go bringing your your theology in here and making sort of counterclaims. Right. So there's two examples that I find really hit home on this. Where you can see a, a, a clear transgression of methodological independence. Let's say you're dealing with mental health questions in in the Catholic health class and the teacher says, you know what? Drugs or counseling are, are never the right approach. You should just pray about it. Right. Well, that's an incredibly dangerous thing to say. Right. Now, should a Catholic health teacher have a good sense of how prayer might be a valuable thing to do when you're battling illness? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to suggest for a second that prayer, you know, doesn't have an important role here when we're facing difficulty. Absolutely, we we should. But what but to just pray it away, if you say that to someone, you're you've you've just put them in a terrible bind. Because what if it doesn't work? Right? Yeah. You've you've got cancer, you've got schizophrenia, you've got, I mean, pick something, mental or physical illness. You're supposed to pray it away and now it doesn't work so now were you not praying properly were you not sincere does god ignore you does god not care about your yeah. situation it puts god in a place too oh if we, yeah yeah you yeah. and god are both in a terrible spot right but instead a catholic approach understands prayer as an essential part of approaching any of life life's difficulties and also says there's a time and a place where pharmaceutical or therapeutic or whatever interventions are you know you should see a professional and so so to give that impression i was talking to a catholic health professional on a podcast yesterday and he said the damage that's done when people spend years trying to pray away something that they needed professional help for yeah to their to not only to their health but to their faith he says it's just so damaged so that's that's a transgression of of the methodological independence of of health the other example I find really handy is if you ever watch the court cases when when uh, like teaching creationism or intelligent design shows up in the news and and then there there's Catholics who are testifying on the stand, you know, there's one, a Catholic biologist who does this quite a bit. I think his name is Kenneth Miller. And he's always testifying him and every other Catholic I've ever seen is testifying against teaching intelligent design in the classroom. Because it's it's a methodological confusion. It's imposing theological categories into a properly scientific question. Now, the reverse is very dangerous, too. We shouldn't 
let science speak as if it's philosophy or theology. And that's what people are doing when they say things like, right. I believe in science. Well, who doesn't? But yeah, like you don't get to skip the actual work here. So the, the, the problem can happen in both directions. But I think in a, in a Catholic context, if we make clear science deals with these kinds of questions and answers these kinds of questions, and you can use the data from science as part of your foundation for doing some further reasoning about, let's say, something like public policy, but they're not the same thing. Science doesn't answer public policy questions. It might answer questions about vaccine efficacy or safety. It doesn't answer questions about whether mandates are prudent or not. That's a that's a different kind of question. If we can keep those clear, you know, that people are going to be a lot better equipped for all kinds of public discussion and whatever else. Yeah, it's it's like trying to use the book of Genesis as a science textbook, uh, which you can't do. And right. by the way, you do an, a marvelous job in the science section talking and addressing areas of what I would call Catholic misunderstanding about the flat world, about Galileo right. and his arguments and everything. And I, I think that it really can cause a lot of people to be a lot less anxious about a Catholic view of of science when they see, well, the problem wasn't the science. The problem was here. It's this. It's that. Right. It was politics. And, it was personalities. It was. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And I want to maybe have you back and do a whole program on science, because I think that oh, was cool. just a marvelous chapter. But one of the things this brings about is that. And you, you kind of alluded to, to it, too, because I've heard people say, look, I don't want to send my kid to a Sunday school, you know, right. so, so that it's just teaching all this Catholic content. They're thinking of it. Oh, it's just going to be vacation Bible school all year round. Right. But to not only know a subject, but to have a Catholic understanding of that subject, what kind of recommendation do you give to teachers where they can go to find more of a Catholic understanding of something like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think teachers, so if you're, if we stick with science, right, a Catholic science teacher needs to be an expert in science, but they also need expertise in the relationship between faith and science. And I would say the same thing for a Catholic literature teacher. You need your expertise in literature right. and you also need to know something about the Catholic literary heritage and Catholic approaches to literature and that sort of thing. And I, I mean, I hope that my chapters are a great sort of introduction. And what they, what I hope they do is sort of shift your imagination from thinking that religion happens in religion class and everything else is taught from some neutral point of view, but rather no, every class is taught from some point of view or other. So let's be intentional and think about what a Catholic worldview is. And then, then in my chapters, I'm able to show, you know, at least some of what that means concretely on the ground. But the danger was that every chapter threatened to become a book. And I actually I actually wish that experts in every area I cover would actually write those books. Now, there are books, science in particular. There's a lot of books I can easily recommend on, on science. If a Catholic science teacher wants to know, I would start with a Benedict the 16th in the beginning, which is just four short homilies on the Genesis narratives, creation narratives. They're incredible. But I would say more generally, I mean, you can read books and I can recommend books and different subject areas have more or less work in them. If you go, I share materials regularly on a Facebook group that, that leads in this direction. 
I would also say just talking to other Catholic teachers in your area, right? So let's say you're a literature teacher. Just getting to know other Catholic teachers who teach literature and think about it like Catholics and maybe having, you know, small professional development groups where you where you read things together or you get together to discuss things. I think both like the research and reading kind of thing is, is part of it. And then like the community aspect and those two things feed each other, right? When you're in community, someone says, oh, I read this great article or it leads to great conversations. All of us, you know, as professionals, all of us need to stay on top of our material, right? So I, I don't want to suggest that I'm asking you to do a whole bunch more work. Like you didn't learn enough in your degree. <laughs> so now you have to go back and develop a whole nother level of expertise. I think it's just part of our professional responsibility to stay on top of things. But if you're Catholic, teaching in a Catholic system, then be intentional. You don't only read and talk about Catholic stuff. There's lots of other good stuff out there too. But part of what you're doing in your ongoing, you know, staying on top of the topic and, and being a, a professional should include those kinds of discussions. So I would recommend the Facebook group as a place to, to start. But, you know, there, there would be lots of opportunities, I think, locally, uh, even staff time. You know, professional development can be ordered to give people chances to share resources and talk about these kinds of things. Okay. Tell us more about the the Facebook group. What's it, what is, the, what's the title of it? And you could just go there and join it or how do you, how do you get involved? Right. So you can just go to, it's called making every class Catholic and you can just go request to join and me or my fellow administrator who is also named Brett, just to confuse everyone, will approve you. And then we share materials and kind of two different kinds of things. I share more of the like, here's an article that I read that relates to a Catholic approach to literature or health or social studies. Brett is a working teacher. The other Brett is a working teacher. And he shares more practical, you know, like, here's a lesson plan on the water cycle or, an, or at least an idea for a lesson plan on the water cycle. Now, we're just getting started. People, We're just getting a kind of, what do you want to call it? Center of gravity, you know, enough people that you can actually start doing some stuff with it. So we want to start doing Facebook Live events where people can just ask questions, you know, and have a conversation with us. But we're hoping that it becomes a place where other people, not just not just Brett and I, but other people are sharing their materials. So if you did a project that really integrated Catholic faith in your art class or your science class, if you could share about that in the Facebook group and it would become a place where professionals could be sharing things with each other. There's also a few other resources like the McGrath Center. You mentioned Claire Kilbane at the McGrath Center. They actually have units available for free on that integrate, you know, a Catholic worldview into some very specific things. So just to give you a concrete example of, of one that you can look at is they do a math unit on China's one child policy. Oh, right? wow. so that's a that's a social studies question. And it's also a math question. And so you have this integrated sort of social studies math unit. But then, of course, in the background, there's deep philosophical questions about, you know, the value of human persons and the and the the, the rightful roles of government and their roles in, in, you know, intimate human decision making and questions about the environment. Like there's all you know, I mean, there's a million connected questions to something like that. Right. But I mean, it's going to be a geopolitical 
you know, the China's population just started to decline last year. And there's also with with the female infanticide or abortion, you have a real disproportion between boys and girls. That's going to have big implications. It's, it's global, really, because it's going to affect immigration and human trafficking. Like it's anyways, the point is, that's one example that the McGrath Center has. But we hope that that, you know, more and more people start producing this stuff mm -hmm. and sharing it. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, this is really such great, great content for our our audience. And uh, I'm going to, like I said, I want to have you back. I want to dig deeper into a, a couple of these subjects that really are, I think, as you said, for example, society, you know, science, the sciences, they're on the front lines. Right. Right now. And uh, in a number of ways. And so this has been good. You know, Brett. Our, as I said, our audience is made up primarily of administrators and teachers. From your position, you not only work with teachers, you're traveling now, you're interfacing with diocesan school groups and things like that. What counsel, encouragement, or advice, maybe just a couple of thoughts that would you have for those that are in the trenches right now in Catholic schools? Right. Well, I would say now is a, is a, is a time of opportunity I mentioned earlier, you know, people are taking a second look. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's people are not happy with public schools in lots of places in the United States. And Catholic schools, I think, can go one of two ways. They can try to sort of mimic broader education. And this is easy to do because, you know, a lot of the staff that you hire is going to have been formed and trained in secular institutions and stuff. And so you have an HR question there too, right? How do you hire people who are committed to the mission or at least right. people who who are open to it and then can be formed in that after they're hired? I think that's a really key thing. But I mean, you can go the way that education in general is going and follow the trends and then you'll get what you pay for and you'll sort of fade into irrelevance. Or you can say, okay, we actually have an opportunity to be really distinctively Catholic. And we're going to put our time and our resources and our energy into that. And then I think the proof is in the pudding. If you look at schools that are doing that, they're attracting students. And, and not only that, they, they tend to be joyful places to work and study. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I would, I, you know, it's, it's hard because I know that institutional momentum is a real thing. Uh, and, it, and it's a tough thing to turn around. But I think now is a real opportunity to take a kind of stand for an intentional Catholic education, to think deeply about what that means. Um, not only for, I, I'm happy for my book to be a resource for what that means in the classroom and in the curriculum. I think there's another book or at least a chapter or an article to be written about what that means in terms of HR. What does mm -hmm. that mean in terms of, of the role of a principal or a superintendent? You know, there's there's a bunch of related questions, and I don't cover all of them in, in in my book, but I think you know there's there are networks, and and Duke and Altum is one of them, where there's people who are collaborating, who are doing mm -hmm. this kind of work, and who are sharing that experience with others. I'm I'm really looking forward to going to the conference in Washington in October, and of course I'll give my presentation, but I'll get to sit in on a few other presentations and, and hear from people who are, you know, working on the same problem from another angle, mm -hmm. from their own expertise. But the general thing is, I would say, like, don't be afraid to, to now's the opportunity 
to really look at what it means to be distinctively Catholic. Right. And, and, you know, it's never going to be easier. If it looks hard to do now, it's going to be harder to do tomorrow. So like now's the time, right? Yeah. That, yeah, that's, that is a great watchword. It's not going to get easier. That's for right. sure. But, and, and I think again, just looking at the title of your book, educating for eternity, that that's really the, that's really the goal. I mean, we really have to put this in an eternal perspective. It isn't just teaching Catholic stuff. Right. It's about preparing a heart and a soul for heaven as they also prepare for life. It's forming people. One of the lines I use in the book is education is not about information. It's about formation. Correct. Yeah. And, and yeah, you're, you're, you're forming people for heaven. And the thing is, I mean, seek ye first, right? If you seek the kingdom, the others will be added to you. You form people for heaven and you're, you're actually forming the best way to form people to change the world is to form them for heaven. But mm-hmm. if you put the focus on the revolution, you lose, you lose both. Right. You know? Exactly. But yeah. People like Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa or, or you know, Oscar Romero, those people changed the world because they were focused on heaven, not the, you know, you have this, well, you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Well, there's a certain kind of false piety, I guess, that we could critique with that notion. But but the the saints are the ones who change history, right? Because they know that history is not the only thing, but they were made for something more. Yeah, that's that is great information to to leave us with just that whole perspective of of why we do what we do and right. why Catholic educators are are paid the big bucks, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're not in it for the money, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, Dr. Brett Sockeld, I really want to thank you for being with me today for this program. Now, are you open for people to making contact with you and being a resource and for others in this area? Absolutely. So I love to come, you know, come see you where you live. I'm going to, you know, meet a lot of the people from, you know, this listenership in Washington, presumably in October, and then Houston again in the next year. But I'm I'm traveling a lot these days. I leave for New Orleans uh, in a couple days to do a few high schools there. I'm hitting Sioux Falls, South Dakota on my way home. But I, I'm absolutely open to traveling and doing presentations for for schools, dioceses, associations, you know, different kinds of groups. Yeah, my my wife and I are kind of we're gearing up for for that lifestyle over the next, you know, couple of years. And it's it's a it's a great chance to meet people who are doing great work all across North America, really. And how can they get a hold of you? You can you can phone me in my office at 306-721-6722. You can send me an email. This is, it's going to sound crazy because it's, it's an old email address, but I still use it because I'm a Luddite. B-R-E-T-Z. I have to say Z because you're, you're mostly American audience. Z-K-Y at hotmail.com. So that's just like Gretzky, but with a B, Bretsky at hotmail.com. So email me or, or phone my office. Some people have reached out by, you know, social media contacts that's a little more hit and miss because social media Mm -hmm. doesn't always know what to do when strangers send you a note 
don't give up if you get junk mailed or something like that you know follow up with me if you try phoning and that doesn't work send an email if you try emailing and that doesn't work send a phone send a phone call but i'd love to hear from you yeah and the archdiocese probably has you lifted listed i would imagine on the the website yes lots of people have managed to just find my phone number you know using the internet but uh, but yes, it's 306-721-6722. Okay, very good. Well, Brett, thank you again for being with us. This has just really been a delight. And it's if you haven't already, here. please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and to be sure to leave a comment to encourage us toward future programs. For more information about the Duke and Altam Schools Collaborative, you may find us online at diaschools.org. May Almighty God bless you. Amen. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altam Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.